Hello and welcome to the original podcast. I'm your host, Jamie C. Foster from the YouTube channel known as Inside a Mind, and my co-host is Eric Nielsen from the YouTube channel known as The Looney Turtle. Hello everyone, it's uh, another lovely episode of the original podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and our guest today is former special effect technician Crit Killen. He's been in the film industry since the early 1980s. He's worked on a lot of films in the special effects department. Uh, Beetlejuice, Gremlins, Aliens are some of the ones that come to mind. He's currently a professor at the Utah Valley University where he's part of their film studies. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, thanks for having me. Good to have you. Yeah. I think one of the first ones I actually want to just start out with is uh, my first question, obviously, is uh, how did you get into the film industry? And obviously, what was your first job? Well, actually, my first job was a movie called Moby Dick, which was actually Moby Dick in Outer Space. Um, really? And it was uh, a movie by Douglas Trumbull. Uh, where it resides now, I do not know, but that was my first foray into the film business. Um, but it came in, in a kind of a roundabout way, um, and I can tell you kind of the short story of that, or the long one, I don't know what you want, but... Um, uh, well, let's go for the long story go and see where it goes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, you can tell me to hurry along if uh, it's too long. <laughs> Well, yeah. Well, it's we'll see. We'll it's see. yeah. It's funny that I'm teaching college since I was so terrible in college, um, and I was basically <laughs> flunking out of my major, which was fine art. Um, I wasn't really great at drawing, but I had a little bit of talent, and so uh, I was struggling to do that. And what I really wanted to do was draw spaceships and fantasy things, you know, um, sci-fi type stuff. And I was drawing bowls of fruit and sunsets and deer by the stream and so I switched my major after meeting a, a friend on the track team I was on the track team at the time I threw the discus and he came over and said you should do industrial design so I went over and that was a lot more interesting because you you know at least you got to draw toasters or some kind of mechanical kind of thing anything that you use in the world is designed out and so cars fell under that category bicycles that kind of thing so I started doing industrial design and the teacher that I had didn't really like to teach so he would basically use university money to travel around the world uh, under the auspices of research and then he would find someone to teach his class for the semester and so it was interesting in some ways because we would get all these different people from different uh, professions around the world but it was kind of disappointing for us because it's like we never felt we had like any direction. Well, one semester, at the end of the uh, semester, he decided to go to Japan, and on his flight to Japan, he sat next to a gentleman, and by the time they landed in Tokyo, he had convinced him to teach his class, and, uh, and he would stay there and wherever in Japan and throughout that region, studying, doing whatever he was doing. Well, when we came back to class, here sits this man and says he's going to take, teach our class for the semester. He said his name was Douglas Trumbull, and that he was a movie producer and a special effects artist, and that he had brought this strange thing with him called a script. And he said, you, <laughs> right? So we didn't know what that was. He says, you read it, and then you have to design everything that's in this story. And so it was Moby Dick in outer space, and we had to design every single thing in the script. And so everyone picked something that, that, that interests them. You know, I had a couple friends who were really good at interiors, you know, and drawing interior design type stuff. And so they picked this interior of the spaceship and the space station and all that. And 
other friends loved to do spaceships and other ones did weapons and so everyone's picking all these different things to do out of the script you'd read the story we passed the script around everybody read it well by the time it got to me a lot of things had been picked already and uh, me being the problem child when I read the story it was basically Captain Ahab was flying around the galaxy and they were hunting the white whale in a black hole and so immediately I'm like wait a second you know black hole you can't go in a black hole I mean that crushes entire planets right so all of a sudden I had this real problem like this doesn't make sense it's gonna be this is a dumb story and so that's when I first learned the uh, the concept of um, of uh, where you have to suspend suspension of disbelief where you suspend you know uh, most of what you would call logical in order to make the story work and I'm like well I get the concept but that's too big a stretch for me to suspend it right so Doug's Douglas Trumbull was like well I don't, don't know what to tell you this is the assignment for the semester so you better figure something out so I couldn't I couldn't make it work in my mind and I was walking home one evening and to my apartment and I always pass this little duck pond so I sat and I looked at just stared into the water and then it hit me it's like well wait a minute Whales beach themselves, dolphins, porpoises, they beach themselves. Something happens, right, in their, in their radar mechanism, and they, they get out of whack, and they beach themselves. We have to push them in, back in. And so I thought to myself, okay, what if, what if a whale, which I could accept had adapted to live in a black hole, just not humans going in there, but what if a whale had beached itself on the shores of a black hole? Then Ahab's flying along, sees this whale, goes down and gets it, and then takes it back to his lab and makes a spacesuit out of the body parts of this whale. Then I, th I, could, I could rationalize that in my mind that that would work, like the eyeball would be the lens for the helmet and the veins and arteries would be your breathing tubes, right, and the skin. And if you had a spacesuit made from a whale's body parts of a whale and they could actually live in there, then feasibly I could see that now a human could go in and hunt the white whale. So I said, okay, I'm going to go about making my project. It was going to be to build a spacesuit out of the body parts of a whale. Of course, I was behind because I was difficult and it had all these problems with the script. So, you know, everybody was off and running, and I was kind of in the corner doing my own thing and doing things at night and stuff. And so, but by the end of the semester, you know, I had a pretty good project going. Well, Doug, Douglas had this assistant that always came with him, and she was from England, actually. Her name was Liz Kern, or is Liz Kern. She's, she became a producer herself in time. But So she was, you know, she was cute, and she would bring up papers for him to sign and all the Hollywoodish type of things, you know, that were really exciting to us. And her accent was fantastic, so we'd always try to find these excuses for her to come and talk to us so that we could listen to her, right? Well, um, right. They came up and just, you know, or she came up and we did all of our projects. And towards the end of the semester, when you have your semester review, they had the big showing where we put up everything. And I had built this suit from the body parts of a whale. And I had a friend who was a bodybuilder, so I had him wear it in when I gave my review. And so Douglas came, um, came over while I was talking. And my friend walks in wearing this suit. And, uh, and he's like, well, wait a minute, this isn't in the script, is it? And I said, no, I rewrote your script and added all this extra stuff in there. Well, that wasn't a very, I thought that would be a great thing, but that's where I learned that you don't rewrite people's stuff when they paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for it, you know. 
But, <laughs> but anyway, my friend walks in and he's wearing this this spacesuit that's part mechanical and part organic. And um, Eric, you've seen pictures of it, correct? That I've shown. Yeah, class. yeah. And so showed it the first day of class. <laughs> yes, and so like I said, I mean the the two the veins, you know, were the breathing tubes and all of the different body parts made up this suit. So Douglas walked over, looked at it, took the helmet off. My friend Jim, who was wearing it, looked at it, tried it on, turned to me and said, would you like a job in Hollywood? And I was like, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, who wouldn't? And he's like, no. He says, I'm leaving tonight after the end of the semester here. I'll do the grades and I'm leaving. And I'd like to see you in my office tomorrow if you can make it. And I was like, like tomorrow? You're going to offer me a job? Like, and he's like, yeah, I'm offering you a job. Come and work with me. And I want you to take and redesign and redo everything we've done up to this point with spaceships and suits and, and the look of the film. And I want it to match what you've done here. And I was like, I mean, I'm a college kid. And I'm like, is this for real? And he's like, yeah, I'm offering you a job. So I just, you know, I mean, I didn't even, I don't think I waited for class to even be over. I ran home. <laughs> start giving away stuff, selling stuff to my roommates, packing my car, I'm going to Hollywood. This guy's invited me, you know. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course, to the dismay of my roommates who are going, dude, this isn't the way it works. You come to school, you graduate, companies extend you offers, they tell you how much, they do all these things. And all Doug had done was give me a phone number on a scrap of paper and said, call me when you get into town. You, you know, my studio's in Santa Monica, California. Buzz me when you get in. Of course, there were no cell phones, and that's kind of how you did business on scraps of paper. Here's my number. Call me. So I'm, you know, I'm just like packing and ready to go, and everybody's saying, "Dude, don't do it, man. Don't, don't. You can't believe this. I mean, he didn't. What? A handshake? That's your contract? You're going to leave school?" And I said, "No, he really told me." And they're like, "Oh man, you're making a mistake." So I didn't listen. I mean, you know, I was on cloud nine and. Um, yeah, yeah, I continued to pack and everything like that, you know. And so got in my car, drove to California, pulled into Santa Monica. and There was a Ralph's grocery store. Pulled in the parking lot and went and put my quarter in the pay phone and called up his studio. And the lady answered the phone, the secretary, and she said, you know, hi, this is Trumbull Studios. Can I help you? And I said, yeah, you know, my name's Crit and Doug. I met Doug and he offered me a job, so I'm here to go to work. And she's like, uh, do you have an appointment to talk with him? And I'm like, no, nah, he just gave me his number and told me to call him. She's like, I can't put you through unless you have an appointment. And she hung up the phone. And I was like, huh, well, maybe that's the way they do it down here, you know. So I drove around a bit or whatever and saw, kind of get the lay of the land and came back and called her again and got the same response. So it was towards the evening, so I just slept in my car in the parking lot of this grocery store and woke up the next morning and put another quarter in the phone and called her up and tried to get through to Doug to say that I'm here. Well, this, this went on the entire day with no luck. So I slept in my car again and then got up the next day and, and called and tried to come up with different reasons. And, you know, I'm just a college guy trying to get through the front door. Well, this went on for about a week and then about 10 days. I don't really have any money, and now I'm really running out of money. And I thought to myself, if I don't get in soon, I won't even have the money for gas to drive home 
of which of course I will come back to school as the you know what everyone said not really a real offer right and um, and be the loser that I was in 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 both majors industrial design and fine art so I'm sitting there on the curb at this grocery store and I'm trying to think you know what I'm as close as I could ever possibly be to my dream and yet with this lady standing guard I'm probably further than I've ever been from what I want and so I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there and I thought about how I couldn't come how I couldn't figure out the script and by sitting and looking at that pond my mind opened up and I thought about that whale and how it beached itself I mean it was like an incredible moment for me and I'm sitting there and sitting there and thinking oh man I, I just couldn't come up with the answer and so I drove around a little bit came back and said okay I'll give myself about an hour and if I can't figure it out I've got to leave and I sat there sat back and then just out of nowhere Liz Kern Doug Trumbull's assistant popped into my mind and I thought oh my gosh that's the answer Liz is the answer and so I got up and it's like and when I say that people say well why was she the answer and I'll tell you why in just a second but I got up put the quarter in the phone now Jamie because you you're you are British right you're from England you you have yeah. the accent yeah. This is what I did, though, and I don't know why I did it. So I put the quarter <laughs> in the phone, and the lady... You did a British accent. And the lady answers the phone, Doug, you know, Trumbull Studios, and I said, <laughs> I, and I apologize, Jamie, for this butchering of your beautiful language. <laughs> but I said, uh, hello, yes, I wonder if you could help me, please. I'm flying back to England today, and I need Douglas to look over some papers for me. Could you put me through, please, love? And she goes, yeah, sure. And she puts me right through to him. Ah. <sighs> Why, and why? 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 Why now? Because uh, because everyone with an accent is important, right? <laughs> you all sound important because you know that's the way it is. I, I mean, she didn't know that I wasn't somebody that you know really was really here on business and put me right through. Well, Doug answers the phone, and he said, "Hey, where you been? I've been waiting for you to get here." And I said, "I'm here. I couldn't get through your secretary. Finally, I got through." And he said, well, great, where are you? And I said, I'm at the grocery store here in, in Santa Monica. And I said, where are you guys? And he goes, wait a minute, you're at the grocery store? And I said, yeah, I've been basically you know, here the entire time. And he said, well, turn around. And I turn around and look at this office building. He says, you see that red office building? That big, it was a big warehouse type building. I said, yeah. He says, well, that's where we are. And I was like, what? I mean... You're, you're literally across the parking lot. I don't even have to drive. I don't, I'll just hang up and walk over there. And it was like, it was like the Wizard of Oz, like Dorothy, you know? I mean, I, I had been there all along, you know? I, I was there. That's the first place I drove to, and coincidentally, it was exactly where I needed to be. So I did just that, and I hung up the phone and walked across the parking lot and into a 40-year career in the movie business. And so I just began this process of uh, taking their designs and switching them over to what I had done with that, uh, with that helmet and with this, the spacesuit that I had made for Moby Dick. So we did all those designs and all that type of stuff. And, you know, in the film business, you, it's not necessarily like you're now on salary for life or something. When that project's, yeah. right, when that project's done, then if they don't have anything else, um, you move on to something. So... 
Having met Doug, then what was great is that when we finished up there, he was able to call his buddy and say, "Hey, I got a you know I got kind of a hot shot kid here and give him a chance." And so I was fortunate that I didn't have to start off, which there's nothing wrong with it, but I didn't have to start off sweeping floors. I got in mm-hmm. with that level, and then all of his people were at his level. So I was able to fortunately move kind of laterally at that same same level I guess is the way to go or the word to use and so so we went from that to all the other different um, projects Predator was in there commercials um, I, yeah. yeah what did you have to do for Predator well so we started with the des- with the creature design so um, oh. there were a lot of uh, really great people on that Steve Johnson spearheading all of that real creative process but they didn't really know what they wanted uh, as a design for the Predator itself, right? It was just, yeah. yeah, just a standard monster. Let's just have this standard monster. It's the same way with Blade Runner. When Blade Runner started, and I started with Sid Mead and uh, John Berkey, two industrial designers, uh, and, and what they wanted, they didn't, they didn't know what the environment of Blade Runner was to look like. And dystopia was a word in the language, but it wasn't really one used very much. You know, we didn't, we hadn't, mm-hmm. we didn't have that like like diesel punk or steampunk those are fairly relatively new words in, in in everyday usage anyway so blade runner they didn't really know what it was to look like and our job in the beginning was to design the uh the automobiles the cars the vehicles well it, they looked kind of strange even for that time to me but you know they were kind of strange but they definitely stood out because we didn't have an environment for them so we actually began to make an environment so that the cars looked a little bit looked a little better than they did just by themselves and that basically kind of metamorphosized into the look which Ridley liked for this for what Blade Runner looked like that rainy mm. dark but initially they didn't have it same with Beetlejuice when we did Beetlejuice Michael Keaton wasn't even cast as Beetlejuice so everything that we were building and doing we were just doing as creative projects so the snake that's in Beetlejuice when the uh, banister rail turns into a snake we just made a snake, but then when Michael was cast as Beetlejuice, then the director Tim Burton wanted the snake, of course, to look like Michael Keaton, right? And so we had just made a snake, and so we kind of had to retro go back and do all that stuff. And so I learned to see that, or learned that, that movies they seem to be all together, and everyone seems to know what they're doing, and they do, but. You definitely don't all don't always have the answers and the complete design when you start. It it is a collaborative process and it does develop right on the fly while you're standing there. So, um, so I came in with Doug and did that. And then when we moved like to Predator, like I said, the the creature was just just was like just a run of the mill creature because that was a really big time for creature effects in Hollywood that late 80s, you know, and, and 90s with yeah. all that stuff, right? So we began working on it. Uh, we did little maquettes, which are like little miniatures to try and try and see what this creature was going to look like. I did a lot of uh, drawings and small sculptures, the maquettes, to try and see if that was something we liked. Jean-Claude Van Damme, of course, was cast originally as the Predator monster, and he's quite short, and the creature itself didn't help, so that, that combination caused a lot of uh, just a lot of problems and they actually shut down the, the production for almost a year while 
this problem was solved. And so, like I said, Steve Johnson and then uh, Stan Winston and all of his great, you know, Steve Wang and his crew all got involved and everybody was just, you know, that, that crew then started off really making this creature that was just became unique, you know. So, um, so yeah, so then we started that all back up again. But then with that time frame now pushing its limit, we couldn't do the creature effects the way we really, really wanted to do them. So we had to do a lot of combining. Um, like, we wanted to have all of his armor and his, like, shin guards and all that stuff. We wanted all of those things to be uh, separate pieces that we attached to him. But with with no time, we just sculpted those all in with the suit itself and then just painted them to look like they were hard, you know, protective pieces all throughout the suit. The only individual piece was that backpack piece that he takes off. And so, oh, and, well, I guess, and that forearm thing where he has, you know, his little control panel. But, um, but yeah, all the other pieces were sculpted into that because we didn't have time to make individual applique pieces, if that makes sense at all. But, and, mm -hmm. and then we pioneered on that as well. We pioneered a new molding process that we'd been working on. Um, usually when you make those suits you use a, a, a foam, a baked foam like a, a um, you know for like when you like when someone's going to change their face and become old or something you know you you sculpt it and then you have that foam that you put on there latex that thing right and so yeah. because the predator the entire suit was that um, we needed to you, you usually use something that's hydroscopic like hydrocal or plaster and then while you're baking that foam in the oven, that plaster is helping to draw the moisture out of the foam and help it cure. And so the problem is, is that is that the predator is so huge, the mold would have weighed about two t about two tons, four thousand ish pounds of plaster to make that, and it just wasn't it just wasn't workable. I mean, the forklift couldn't take a mold and put it in the oven that big. So we created a fiberglass mold, which is not hydroscopic. It doesn't suck water moisture out of anything. And then we we took our chances and crossed our fingers that our calculations would work. And it was the first time that we, I think anywhere in Hollywood, they'd made a mold out of anything but plaster. And we, ba you know, we had a different, like we baked it half the temperature twice as long kind of thing. That's not exactly it, but that's, we had a formula that we figured would work, and it did. And it kind of revolutionized mold making from that time forward and I have a picture of my partner holding up half of the predator mold so that one person could hold half of the entire mold when done the old way the traditional way it would have taken a forklift and have been probably a ton at least worth of plaster so it just all that kind of stuff came together to to just cement my position, I guess, or my place in amongst all these great special effects guys, even though I was kind of a young, snot-nosed <laughs> kid, you know. We just yeah, well, y you were a part of a lot of things that revolutionized stuff. Like, you were talking about Blade Runner not long ago, about how the design for the whole city, um, and literally most of the movies from then onwards that had futuristic cities kind of seemed to base it off of that one That's correct. movie. Yes, absolutely. It's insane. I guess... Um, uh, oh, go on. I'll I'm, I'm kind of curious of... Um, ha have you ever had to work with, like, animatronics? Because um, I'd kind of assume you might have during the, the Gremlins. Yes. I mean, anim 
that's the thing that is so interesting, at least at that time, and I think it's still similar today, and that is that, for example, M Moby Dick, that ended with Douglas Trumbull, right? So, okay, the next thing is actually, the, the thing I went to actually right after that was I went to work for uh, uh, Mark Stetson, Stetson Visual Services. He got the Academy Award for Lord of the Rings and all that type of stuff. But he, I went right over to his place and they had a commercial, a Dodge commercial, where there was, it was like a 1967 Dodge Dart was supposed to turn into, morph, morph itself into a 19 whatever, uh, you know, new version Dodge Shadow. And so that was actually replacement animation. And I mean, I'd never done, re I'd not, never done replacement animation, but okay, here's the job. You sculpt it, you, you sculpt every one of these little fenders is slightly different till it looks like, a, you know, the new, the brand new model. And then you create a board and registration holes and pins behind every single fender in the exact same spot as every other one preceding it. And by the time you're done with that, you're practically an expert in replacement animation. And then the next job is, you know, I, I don't know, but let's say Predator, and suddenly I'm making a creature that has certain things that are animatronic, wires, remote control, you know, to move the mandibles and to move the eyebrows, and you've got usually guys who've done it, and you learn it, and you do it, and by the time you're done with that, you understand how that works, and then, and then there's no jobs in any of that, but there's, there's a makeup job. You, you know, if you can come over and turn, you know, the actress into a screaming witch in this scene, then you can get a paycheck. So you're like, well, I think I can do that. Of course, there's no Google or YouTube to learn from back then, but you get somebody that knows it or, you you know, you go over there and you do the best you can. And, it, and by, the, by the time, you know, by six months, a year, two years, you have just by default done so many different things because you're a special effects artist so you have to basically be a special you are a special effect and you have to figure that out I remember I went to set on uh, the original Dark Tower and I think they came out with one a couple years ago but Dark, yeah. the Dark Tower and I was doing I, I was doing something with that whatever we were doing and I always had a nice camera a still camera and I would try to take pictures when they would let me so I could build my portfolio well, the, the director saw me with that camera, you know, day after day, and then one day the, the still photographer guy didn't show up. So, I mean, they needed a still photographer. So they said, hey, when you do, when you finish with your effect, will you stay on and be the still photographer? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. And so now I'm, now I'm done with whatever I was doing. We had a couple little blood effects or something on that movie. We did that, and then I became the still photographer for that, the rest of that film. And um, and that had Jenny Auger in it, who was uh, the nurse in American Werewolf in London, if you've ever seen that, uh, right? That, so the nurse in that, she was. A, so I'm taking these pictures of her, and she's loving them, and you know we're getting them blown up. And so then then someone hires me on another film to be a still photographer. It's like <laughs> I don't know what I'm. I'm not a. But you know you end up doing that because those opportunities are right there in front of you, and so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think I'm answering your question in a long about roundabout way, but you just <laughs> do everything: animatronics, special effects, makeup, um, cable, cable type things. I mean, Beetlejuice—we just—it was so much cable work in Beetlejuice. Cable meaning, 
your eyebrows or lips or cheek movement, right? And it's all controlled by pulling cables uh, with levers and that kind of thing. Because that's the only way you could make something move back then, that way or stop motion, right? Yeah, think about that. The only way you could put life into a non-living thing was either stop motion or cables or radio controlled like that animatronic type of thing. And it had to be as smooth and as good as, yeah, you know, you can... It's crazy. Did you ever have to do stop motion? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of David Allen, but uh, David Allen Productions, but we did this incredibly famous movie called RoboJocks, which no one's ever heard of, except occasionally when I do seminars, there'll be these little groups of of people that that's kind of become their cult <laughs> classic, you know. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, right. You know how that, like Pumpkin yeah. Pumpkinhead is a cult classic. and Yeah. It, right. I don't know. There's all these little things that just come up. I've, I've noticed it with, with a ton of little movies that were during the 80s that a ton of people, like a small group of people just really love. These great. Yeah, these little movies. And so that was my first real foray into stop motion where RoboJocks was... Uh, where in the end of the world or wherever towards whatever in the future uh, you did armies didn't fight what you would do is you would have a designated person from each country that would get in a giant transformer you know like I don't know you know like six seven hundred feet high they would get in these transformers and then they would fight and whoever won that kind of determined I mean that's kind of a loose interpretation of the movie but basically that's it right <laughs> everything was solved okay. by these giant uh, transformers and so we made all the robots for them and they were all cable operated and then of course stop motion and what's interesting is that you 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 build full size and they might build the feet and part way up the leg for full size and you'd build a head full size and then we had and the robots themselves the transformers themselves were six about six feet tall and they went all the way down to about six inches tall and you use them for whatever purpose so you know you would be out in the desert in california and you'd use a two foot tall robot in a force perspective right so you'd have the six six foot tall robot and then a force perspective two foot tall robot you know twenty yards down the way but looked like it was maybe a mile away so and those would have to all be stop motion done and so yeah i had i had not done stop motion and uh it was so much stop motion was required on that film that i became a stop motion you know guru kind of person that you just did it and you learned <laughs> and it was interesting and i think phil Tippett was the master or one of those and he's the one who did all those you know the four foot walker and all that stuff in star wars and all right right and they actually pioneered where you would move so you'd move your you'd move your creature or your whatever you're animating you'd move it and then as you're pulling away and they're just about to take a picture with the camera you would flick the wire flick the little support that held the held your guy up and that little bit of blur made it look more realistic because in actuality when you walk past me in front of me let's say I see you but there's actually a slight blur from the motion of you going by stop motion is so crisp because you move it stop it move it stop it move it stop it that we don't get that blur so he discovered that if you like flick the little wire or the little support that now you've moved it again and it's actually slightly shaking so you get a little bit of a motion blur which helped blend it all together so so 
You know, there's so many things like that. It reminds me of uh, wooden shipbuilding, right? And all the glory yeah. days of the man of war. Who knows how to do that today? Where's that technology <laughs> to build a man of war? I mean, uh, what I what I find interesting is the uh, with, with stop motion, like having that blur in there. It reminds me a little bit of animation because there's there's moments where an animator, in order to make the motion, like in order to sell that motion, uh, they'd add smears and and like maybe even duplicate the face a couple of times just to make it accentuate the movement. Exactly. And so with cell animation the same way, I ended up doing a bunch of projects with cell animation and the same thing that you're talking about, Eric. And so it's like, wow, all of those, all of those wonderful little secrets, well, let's quote Blade Runner, they're, they're lost in time. Like tears in rain, they're gone. You know, there's just a handful of old, old bald-headed guys like me that know that. But I mean, when we started, well, like that commercial for Dodge, the Dodge car commercial, we didn't have a morphing program. You had to say, "This is what a 1967 Dodge Dart looks like," and you have to sculpt hundreds of fenders or hundreds of bumpers, hundreds of cars slightly different, an eighth of an inch different, until maybe 300 fenders later, you have a 19-whatever, whatever year it was, Dodge Shadow. And then you begin filming the fender number one, bumper number one, and then you end up with bumper number 322. And then when you run them all to play them all at the same, you know, play them all together, it looks like it's moving, right? Now, you don't have any of that technology. You simply say, here's my start frame, here's my end frame, and you hit the morph <laughs> button, much. right? Boom. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's so easy. <laughs> right. It's um, Snapchat filled this for it now. So yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's incredible, but it's like, wow. It's such an interesting thing to look at. I When I give these seminars, I tell people it's like the Old West, right? It'd be like Jesse James riding into town stepping off his horse and a car drives by a ferrari drives by and that's the way it was when i entered into hollywood it was the heyday like the heyday of the cowboy it was the heyday of 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 creature effects and animatronics and stop motion and all of these wonderful night of the living dead and all these kinds of movies and by the time i basically felt like i was a really seasoned veteran or something the guy, a guy walked in with this strange-looking, the the strange-looking electronic thing, a keyboard that looked like a typewriter. <laughs> he sets up and punches some buttons, and all of the years of skill that we've practiced just vanished while these motors did this action and could repeat that action perfectly, take after take after take, where we would sometimes push too hard or, okay, now mm. you know throw the ball and make it bounce into the trash can. Well, it took me six times to do it. He could make it bounce in there every single time or whatever, you know. And we, yeah. Yeah. and you look at it and you go, uh-oh, I just saw the future and it doesn't include me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> oh, man. They, there's been a few things that I think have been slowly coming back with practical effects. I don't obviously think for every movie. I think CGI is definitely slowly taking over there but i think because a lot of people have really get nostalgia from the 80s there's been a few things on netflix that i've noticed i don't know if you've seen the dark crystal age of resistance which is obviously a prequel to the original which has got 
kind of a blend between CGI and, and puppets, and they've created the sets as well. Um, which, honestly, I kind of enjoy it just for that, just for the fact that it's not um, just totally CGI. And I think some people have gotten a little sick of that with, with everything just being a green screen. Um, so when something like that comes along, it's almost like a breath of fresh air and a, a lot of people on the internet end up talking about it. Absolutely. And I don't know what it is. I mean, I'm trying to identify it. I mean, there is obviously a weight and a realism to it that even CGI still hasn't quite... Well, they do maybe on the highest end projects, but overall it's still... You can almost still tell when it's CGI. So there's something about the realism that we see as humans... But um, there is a nostalgic thing. Even like a record, you're, you're okay. If you listen to a record, the old vinyl, you're okay with a few little clicks and pops. Something about it is very earthy to you or grounded. And I think that's the same way yeah. with what you're saying. We can see that it's a prop or that it was created and it may even have some flaws in it. But somehow we're okay with it. It feels right to us to see... Star stormtroopers that are you know not not just duplicated they're actually yeah. real or Mad Max um, the latest you know uh, Fury Road yeah. I mean I, it's just wow I mean you know what I mean because yeah when stuff yeah. like that happens it's it's it, it like I said breath of fresh air it's it's just great to see because you like you were talking about with I think even on the biggest budgets uh, people can still see that it was green screen I think. Um, it's Avengers Endgame. A lot of people actually complain about that. The fact that most of that was just a green screen, and you can kind and you can still see. Uh, and I, th- I, I think I sometimes I wonder if it's down to the fact that because it's happening so much that we're adapting to it and we're starting to see the problems with it because we're seeing it so often. I think you're absolutely correct. I mean, we, you know, audiences are really very sophisticated today in in you know what they see they let a lot yeah. of things go but they do see it and and yeah that's right when it is when it's when it's so saturated in everything we really get wise to it um and and there's Al- yeah although i will say that um there are some movies that are making strides in making the unreal seem more realistic um like uh toy story if you watch the original versus now uh they've they've really taken a lot of notes on what those minor details are like um you on the toys you can see them scratched up you can mm, see yes. uh, certain yeah. damage on them so i um yeah no well i i actually heard that i don't know how true it is but apparently every totally cgi movie obviously like pixar that they work on one specific thing every movie like you know that i think every movie there's a groundbreaking thing that they work on i think Mona, for example, I think was sand or something like that. So it's Moana. Like it's, uh, I think I Moana think was, was Moana. water. Was it they, water? I can't remember which. Well, one Titanic was. was water as well, and Nemo was water. I think because water was a huge one that they had to continue, yeah. and I think they still continue to do. But yeah, yeah. The, uh, with Moana in particular, they had to simulate um, water having form while also still kind of crumbling on itself. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and what's interesting too is that when we did the abyss, water was you know because it had that water worm thing, right? So water was a that was a big issue before we even knew it was going to be an issue. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was yeah. It was something that was yeah. And fur, I can't remember what what movies 
like you said, but fur was a big one. Hair on animal, you know, animal animal fur and stuff. Yeah, is a huge one. And uh, and I have a really good friend, uh, Johnny Banta, Jonathan Banta, um, and he he's gotten a few patents and things on some of his tools and breakthroughs. And because that's everyone knows, if you can do that, if you can solve the fur problem, the water problem, the I don't know pores on skin or something then you really have uh, a real gold mine because we're not going to fully go back to three-dimensional props. It's going to be, um, well, it's going to be like what, like what I say stop motion is. It becomes an, a style or an art form type thing, right? Watercolor, oil. You want this picture to be in watercolor because watercolor has a certain feel to it that lends itself maybe to a beach scene. And you do oil because it has maybe a more richer feeling and when you're going to do something historic. And so stop motion is now, it's like, of course we can tell that's not real. I did it because I want you to see that it's stop motion. I want that feeling of stop motion. And so we're never going to go back to those. And so definitely each time, like you say, they're improving that craft more and more and more. And I'm sure we won't be able to tell eventually. Um, but it's fun right now in this kind of this interim era. Who knows how long it'll last? But it's fun because it's a fun throwback. Now it's a throwback like Mad Max, and and I think they built didn't they build a full size Millennium Falcon for for uh, the last movie, which I which will remain un, un I won't speak about. But um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they did. They've the Star Wars. I've heard they've gone back to um, a lot of set building and stuff because so i heard one of my friends was got to be an extra in it unfortunately a stormtrooper so you'll never see him but um <laughs> but yeah when he went on it he said it felt like you're actually stepping into star wars just because of i think it was rogue one not not obviously the previous one but yeah it was crazy that's fantastic yeah it's it's just such a tremendous playground i mean films are just it, it just really is something and uh and i and filmmaking is the same. It's the same, but different. But it's the same, uh, you know. Even though uh, what we're really doing is creating with pixels, you know, um, it's still that creative process. You're just doing it kind of in a cubicle as opposed to out in a shop where um, you're really forging things into life. So, yeah, it's pretty, it was it's was quite a time, you know, and. Like I said, when that guy showed up, we knew something. We knew we were going to have to reinvent ourselves, either learn what he knew or reinvent ourselves some way because the future mm-hmm. had arrived. Yeah. 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 I think that's all, always the case with this particular industry. It's always changing constantly. Uh, you can see demonstrations with that with the Internet and YouTube. Uh, there's it's YouTube has only been going on for about 10 years, and you can already see the insane change it's, uh, and transformation it's had between creators and the type of content people watch. And that's just been the space of 10 years. Before it was like short videos. Then though a lot of those creators have dropped off or just kind of not been able to keep up with the times and the constant change of trends. I, th- I think the internet has also impacted that, the fact that it's kind of sped up trends than uh, what it used to. Uh, because obviously everyone gets the information at pretty much the same time now rather than it being spread from one person to the other slowly and yeah youtube's kind of been in that situation so if if 
um, it, it's almost harder now to keep up with all the um, switches in in what's happening and new things coming in. I mean, there's like there's like seven different uh, apps you could go on to to create content. Um, I don't know if any, if you two are aware of TikTok, which is obviously like the uh, another big thing that everyone's going for. I'm um, acutely aware of TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it's uh, crazy. I, I do have to say, like, there some of the tools like TikTok are making it way easier to make content in a way that you oh, want. Oh, yeah. Well, like I just um, said earlier about Snapchat filters, like, th- I'm not joking. There probably was an actual filter for the amount of effects that you would take a long time to put together um, 10 years ago. Um, speaking of effects, uh, well, more specifically, I'm, I'm curious Segway. about... Yeah, I'm terrible at segues. So... Um, <laughs> I'm curious with uh, some of the props that you've gotten because you've you've taken a couple of them and and shown them in class. Um, are, are there any that you'd you'd want to kind of uh, discuss? I think Jamie might be interested in some of them. I probably would be. <laughs> yeah. I've had so many props in the past, and that's another thing that's changed. That's an entire industry that I don't think people today realize. I mean, it's it's taken for granted so much. Back when we started, there was no collecting. I mean, sure, there's always been collecting. Everybody collects things, right? But there was no real wholesale across the board. Everybody collects or saves or puts value to things. And so we didn't keep props a lot of the times. We, You know, you just chuck them or something. And um, it wasn't really until uh, Planet Hollywood came along that, and, and you know, if, I don't know if you remember them. I think they're, they've kind of come and gone almost even, but they began to populate their stores with all the different props and things from different movies. But before that, it was like, you know, it was no big deal. I mean, when we did Freddy, I can't remember what Freddy I worked on, but it's the one where Freddy turns into a giant snake and, and eats Patricia Arquette, eats the act, the, the lead actress. So, you know, met, uh, Freddy Krueger would, um, he would morph into different things, right? He's the dream, maybe it was Dreamweaver. I, 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 I guess you could look on my IMDb, but... Um, I think it was the third one. Maybe the third remember. one. I'm sure I just looked at it. Yeah. Um, I'd have to double check. Whatever that. <laughs> I, yeah, okay. So let's the third one, let's call it. And so... Yeah, yeah. Um, so we made Freddy into a snake that was large enough to swallow a human, right? I mean, this was a massive prop that was animatronic. I mean, it was huge. It gobbled up the, the, the main actress, you know, in her nightmare, and it just, I mean, it's facial expressions. It looked like Freddy. I think I showed it actually in class, Eric, if you remember. But um, were you paying attention? Maybe, maybe. Oh, I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> so, and so, right, okay, so this is a massive prop, you know, 10 feet long, whatever, big enough to swallow a human. And when we were through, it was like, yeah, yeah, who wants it? So we're like, yeah, we'll take it back and hang it up in the shop. It'll look really cool as something we've done. But, I mean, the studio just was like, yeah, get rid of it. Who wants it? Get Take it out of here, right? Uh-huh. I mean, something that huge. So so on Beetlejuice, I got to be fairly good friends with Michael Keaton, at least at the time. And uh, and so the, the business cards that are in the movie, I've got the business card that he gave me from that. And, and uh, one of the outfits, you know, there were, there were half, at least I know of three, you know, the hero one and then some stand-in ones and stuff, you know, for getting dirty and whatnot. But... Um, so I have those, but I've had I've had a Chucky doll. I did so many Star Trek things. I just had tons of Star Trek stuff, 
And then each movie that we did, they kept saying, this is the last one we're ever going to make. So they would give us all this memorabilia because this is the last one. So I had uniforms and tricorders and just everything because, um, you know, they were going to not do them. And then, of course, I guess for whatever reason, money, I'm sure, then they're going to do another Star Trek. And we're like, wait a minute, we were special because we were the last ones. And then they would do another one. But, yeah, just so many props. But I didn't have any value placed on them because there wasn't like it is today where Comic-Cons and you go there and you get a picture and, I, oh, I got this little whatever it is, a ray gun, and you, you sign it for me. And it just wasn't like that. Because also we didn't have phones with pic, with with uh, cameras on them. Well, we didn't have phones. So we, I don't have the pictures that you have today. I mean, I probably took 30 pictures today alone. Um, but, we you know, you only had a roll of 30 or 36 or whatever it was back then. And you had to be careful of how you used them. And then it cost you money to get them developed. And so... It wasn't the same. I mean, that's a whole nother lost little bit of the way the world was that, I mean, you can just go in and it's like you just take pictures of everything. I take pictures of what I'm having for lunch and send it to my friends. You know, look at this. And yeah, you just, you, you, they were sacred back then. And so the props didn't have the same thing. And so, but, you know, for those of us that liked it in general, we would somehow end up with some of those things and they were great but then if my nephew wanted it I think I gave the Chucky doll away to my nephew um, you know and who knows he probably lit it on fire and you know and so all it probably haunted him yeah probably <laughs> yeah it probably came back so to life. I yeah came to life in his bedroom but um, yeah so if I think back on everything if I still had even half of all the stuff I had even the Freddy snake can you imagine if I had that Freddy snake today that'd be really something but uh yeah, that's the way it was, and now there's so much value placed on those things that, um, yeah, you can't get your hand on any of it. Oh, uh, just to also add, uh, it was Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I was right. I just checked it. <laughs> Yay. IMDb for the win. <laughs> I think we'll go on to, um, uh, well, I think you'll obviously know a lot more about this, but uh, Eric has given me a bit of a rundown of it, which is the... DNA Story Helix. There you go. Okay, DNA Story Helix. Well, to segue, I guess, as we... Yeah. To segue from special effects into that, uh, as I was saying earlier, when we saw the future, it, mainly the future came up and punched us in the face. When we saw that happening, you had to really decide... You know, you had to look and go, am I going to be relevant in another year from now? I mean, if this guy can do this, you know, and yes, Star Wars had motion control cameras. Yes, that stuff did exist, but it was like all high-end technology. It existed only for the high-budget, high-end, you know, like military-type application. But this guy came onto the set and proved this was going to be an everyday thing. You don't need a huge budget. This is going to become mainstream. And so you had to reinvent yourself. Uh, a lot of my friends were, you know, didn't know it because we didn't know what computers were, but their minds were set and they were computer savvy because their minds worked that way. Mine didn't work that way at all. As you know, in preparing for this tonight, I'm trying to <laughs> download the software and make it all work and and uh, showing my my lack of ability to do so. But I couldn't quite grasp the whole computer thing. I bought a Mac. I couldn't, you know, I could make the little dot bounce across the screen, but I couldn't understand anything beyond that. So, um, 
what was interesting is that when I, to go back to the, the beginning when I was telling my story, when I actually couldn't figure out what to make in the script because it didn't make sense to me that, you know, you could go in a black hole. My friends had already picked everything pretty much, you know, to design. And the only thing left was for me to actually come up with something and then write it and add it in the script. Well, that actually turned out to be beneficial a second time, not just the first time and then, you know, to build the suit that Doug liked. But the second time was I met a lady named Nora Lee, and she wrote for Cinefix Magazine, which was a really big magazine at the time for special effects. I think it's still around, actually, but Cinefix, C-I-N-E-F-E-X, maybe, or F-X. But uh, she wrote for that, and she heard about the story of me rewriting someone's script, and she thought that was pretty interesting. And then when she, we talked about it, uh, and the fact that it had come off pretty well, and I'd gotten a job from it, she started introducing me to this writers group that she knew about and I mean this group had Joe Esterhouse and Nora Ephron and and Joseph Stefano who wrote Psycho for Hitchcock and so here's this group of people Frank Capra Jr. here's this group of people these writers who were at the top of their game I mean I think I remember Joe Esterhouse being the first person to sell a script for a million dollars I'm I could be wrong about that but I think that's where and it was basic instinct. So, um, so here you have this whole other field. Like I was saying before, you get a chance to do makeup because it's the only only gig going. You take it. Here's this chance to go talk about writing because I have accidentally written something that that somebody liked, and then I was able to you know parlay it into uh, a prop and special effects that then got me into Hollywood. So I began to go and become part of this writing uh, version of, of movies because it was interesting to me that you would work all this time on making these monsters or props or buildings or whatever it is you're making and then you take them over to a set and when you arrive there's hundreds of people and lights and cameras and cords and every sort of thing imaginable and I'm like, well, wait a minute, where did all of this come from? Because it's not just for me. I'm just adding a part to this. What? Where does this originate from? And then when I got in with the writers group, it was. It seems obvious, but for some reason it wasn't to me. But it all originates with a story, with an idea that somebody has. And then as I looked at the movies and I looked at how these guys wrote these things, I was fascinated that they were completely different, but yet they were similar in the style and the way. And that has basically become the Hollywood way or the Hollywood style. I mean, as far as visually, usually a Hollywood movie will start off with an with a uh, you know, a long shot or something where we can, you know, we see the whole thing or, you know, there's just a couple of little handful of of tricks that make something look like a Hollywood movie, but as far as writing goes, it had the same kind of thing going on. And then as I started looking at European film and independent film, I'm seeing that actually everybody does it in a similar way. So I start asking these guys, Joseph Stefano, how, how do you do this? How do you do what you do? And they're like, well, I don't know. How do you ride a bike? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I guess balance. And, and so I couldn't really get out of them any kind of little nugget of, of, of how and what they're doing. So me being visual, I said, well, can, can you draw your process? Maybe you could draw it out for me and I could understand it. And they're like, well, we don't know how to draw. We're writers. And so I like to tell people that 
it, it took me a, it took me a few years but when I finally got it down it was because they didn't know how to draw what they were doing and I couldn't understand what they were doing until I drew it and what I drew and came up with was what I call like Eric said the DNA story helix because it's a it's a paradigm type looking thing that looks like the DNA molecule it looks like the infinity symbol the number eight laid on its side right and yeah right and so what I found what I looked and saw was that movies and stories all follow this like undulating pattern it starts off and it goes up and then it comes down and it crosses itself almost every single time in the middle and then it goes down to that lower part of the figure eight or the infinity symbol and then back up again you have a horizontal line that cuts right through it that divides that infinity symbol or the number eight and a half um, but the story will start off and it'll go and go and it rises up like the number eight going right up 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 and then at a point it'll turn and start coming down cross over that horizontal line go down 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 until it reaches a point and then start back up again and finish back on that line if that makes sense um, mm -hmm. and so as I looked at it I saw that every single story does that now it might do it it might take longer to get to certain times it might be shorter to get in certain times that number eight or that infinity symbol might be stretched way out those movies we sit and look at our watch and go uh, when's anything gonna happen in this thing you know when is this gonna get started and then some movies the, the that that symbol might be very compressed because everything is happening really really fast and it's just a whirlwind of, of activity but at some point the stories take a turn at some point there's a midpoint and that midpoint gives us like a choice or a sign or a symbol or a a piece of information that tells us okay our character is has to make some kind of decision to change what he's doing in order to do something else and the perfect example of that is Star Wars A New Hope the first one all of them have it this one's just very very obvious um, and so what happens is is that in the midpoint you know what happens in almost the exact mathematical midpoint of Star Wars 55 minutes and something seconds or something like that maybe it's 61 I think it's 62 minutes actually but uh, or 61 minutes but what happens is that scene where Luke is fighting that remote or practicing with the remote right and mm -hmm. and he defeats it and Obi-Wan says you've taken your first step into a larger world that happens at almost the exact mathematical midpoint of Star Wars if you take the amount of minutes, I think it's 122 minutes or something, and you divide that in half, it's almost exactly the middle of that. It doesn't have to be exactly the middle, but this one happens to be fairly close. And so what happened? The whole point of Star Wars is we, and we don't know this till basically the end though, is that we have to destroy the Death Star. The Death Star has to get destroyed. That truly is the one and only thing that matters in that movie, in A New Hope right because right from the beginning this lady wearing white bends over and puts something in a little robot now we know that's Princess Leia putting it in R2-D2 but when we watched it for the first time that is that happened virtually right in the first few pages of that movie first few minutes of that movie and that becomes the driving force of the entire movie get this robot 
to the rebel base so they can find a weak spot and then someone has to exploit that weak spot. That someone becomes Luke Skywalker. Well, it could have been Obi-Wan, but if it was Obi-Wan, we wouldn't have Luke, right? So Luke starts off and our story begins and our story goes to a point where it has to turn and then come back down and cross its midpoint. And that midpoint is is that is that scene we talked about. But this, and I also say, every movie, every good movie, is at least two stories. The one story in every movie, I call the blue line, is half of this figure eight, is the physical outward story, the outer story, right? That's the one that they talk about that's on the poster. Luke is living right. in a physical story of, I'd like to get off of Tatooine, I'd like to go to flight school, you know, I'd like to do these things. Well, he starts to get his chance to do those things, but we know, and we are told a couple of different times in that movie, we know that the physical capabilities of human cannot hit the hole in the Death Star. You cannot hit that two-meter hole. Not even a computer can do it, right? Isn't that what we're told? Even towards the end of that I movie, so, that yeah. pilot says, you, a computer can't hit that hole, and Luke says, hey, I used to, I used to shoot womp rats or something, and they're not much b bigger than two meters, so I think I can do it. But we know the physical, the physical body can't do it. The physical outward story cannot accomplish what has to happen. The only way we can accomplish the, 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 the point of the story is for Luke to at least be versed enough in the Force to be able to listen to Obi-Wan, turn off his tar targeting computer, and trust in this energy that allows him to hit the hole with a with a, a a power greater than his physical self, right? So the two stories, if you can take a figure eight or the infinity symbol and divide it in half, the upper part of that that comes down into the lower part, that would be your physical story. The lower part coming up to the other, you know, upper part becomes the more spiritual or deeper or uh, cerebral part of every story. It's the moral lesson, you know, right? And so Luke's whole job in this entire story is to get off of the physical and into the spiritual. Get off of the physical and into the force, right? And so that midpoint is where he takes his first step into there. And I find that very interesting. And if you take any take any movie, Liar Liar, I know these, that's a little bit older movie as well, but if you remember Jim Carrey, right? He was he he couldn't commit to his child, and he thought he was a great guy, but he he just couldn't ever stand up and be that stalwart father. But he always had excuses as to why he couldn't stand up for him. There's always a reason. But when he was standing with his wife in the repo yard getting his car back, he's arguing with her, and out of his mouth comes, "Listen, Audrey, I'm a bad father." His wife's name was Audrey. "Listen, I'm a bad father." And then he stops and realizes, oh my gosh, I'm a bad father. And at that, that's at the midpoint, coincidentally enough. That's the exact midpoint of that movie. And so now, at the midpoint, you are given that opportunity. You're given that, the information and the choice. I'm going to stay a physical person or I'm going to be a deeper, more spiritual person. Luke knew right then he'd taken his first step into a larger world. It took all the rest of the movie in order for him to... Um, be able to actually do that and it took Jim Carrey the, all the rest of the movie to undo all the junk he crap he'd put you know created 
but right then you know it and from that point on you know it and the audience knows it is he going to get off this physical outward path and go to a spiritual deeper path or will this movie end with him still on that physical path if it ends with him still on that physical path and he doesn't discover or ever move to that more spiritual deeper moral lesson we call those tragedies right because he didn't get it he didn't figure yeah. it out when he makes that move over there that's when the audience goes oh yes he did it he got it and then they triumph however they triumph when Luke turned off the targeting computer it scared us but we then knew Luke you know use the force trust the force whatever Obi-Wan said and when he did it then we knew he was gonna make it and that happened about 15 minutes before the end he finally went from this physical outer path up to his uh, more deeper moral spiritual self and was able to accomplish the goal so um, I began to see that in every movie like I said it's in Liar Liar it's in all these different movies it just takes a different type of form and I just have spent the last 32, 5, 8 years uh, refining that for producers and directors who read a script and go you know I kinda like it but it it just didn't grab me and I'll look at it and go well it just doesn't have it doesn't have this other story it doesn't have that stronger um, spiritual storyline and that's why you don't feel this this thing at the end type of thing or whatever you know what I mean yeah and mm -hmm. and so it comes down to wants and needs the the upper physical story is basically the characters wants what they want they want this Luke wants to get off Tatooine he wants to go with his friends to college his need however his need is to learn the force so that he can do this incredible thing towards the end of the movie so that became this obsession with me because all of this now was the beginning of this amazing filmmaking process idea to story to script that's where it all started and now special effects and creating a monster or a spaceship was just a small part I took so much excitement in this genesis of where all of these things came from not just the single little part that's a spaceship but the overall story and relaying it and of course visually if you could see the DNA helix Eric tell me if I'm wrong it, it makes it a lot easier to understand yeah yeah it does it, it does uh, help to have a visual representation of, of this um, diagram thing but. diagram yeah and so uh, you can find it on his IMDB oh yes. uh, it's there's a lovely picture of it if you yeah, guys ever want to look I at it. I can see that picture. So if, if anyone actually listening to the podcast, they can ser search up Crit Killing um, and it'll pop up straight there with an image of it. Or you can actually search up the name of it, the Story Helix. And it'll pop is there pictures of it as well? I think there there should, should be. be yeah. I'm sure I checked. I will just double check mm -hmm. for you. And you can see that the I don't yeah, that physical think line. that it shows up on that, but... Um... You'll def. I, I don't think it uh, shows up on uh, Google Images. Um, it just shows a bunch of DNA. Yeah, I've, I've tried to keep that because you know I do have a book in the works and I wanted to keep it you know fairly whatever under I don't know about under wraps per se because I give seminars all over about it. But and I'm teaching yeah, it yeah. as a class at the university. But um, but yeah, I, I, there is a picture on my IMDb pictures under under the photos section. Um, of it and you can see that that blue line is that outer physical and and like I said if your character stays on that and ends the movie in that we call those tragedies because they didn't learn the moral lesson 
or at least one type of tragedy. There's get into academia and there's all kinds of tragedies. But um, but then that bottom red line becomes what our character needs. So it's a, always a battle between wants and needs. And our characters usually don't know what they need at the beginning, and it's a it's a journey of discovery for them and the audience as well. Um, and then you use all the other tools of writing, whether you whether the audience knows or knows more than the character, the main character, or the main character knows more than the audience. You just use whatever writing trick you feel best to tell your story. But uh, you know, like in every horror movie, we know the monsters out in the woods. The kids are in the cabin, and invariably. A girl has to go to the bathroom, and it's like, no, don't go outside, <laughs> don't go outside. You know, that's we uh, should split up. Yeah, yeah, let's split up. No, yes. no, don't split. You know, that's kind of Ooh, that's a the spooky house. Let's split up. Yeah, <laughs> it's that dramatic irony, and so sometimes it's better to for the audience to know more. Sometimes it's better for the character to know more. But if it's all on this, if it's all can, uh, you can lay it out on the helix. The other thing that happens is that we are creatures of balance and rhythm. And so it's okay if your movie, you want to stretch that helix out and take, you know, longer to introduce your movie. You just risk the audience going, oh my goodness, is anything ever going to happen in this movie? So you'd have to have lots of action. So so Mad Max Fury Road starts off, it's actually really a balanced film, but even if it wasn't, you have so much going on that it could pull and sustain an audience for longer if you chose to have, you know, if you chose to stretch that out a little bit. Or if you want to really quickly introduce everything and do your first act, if you want to, if you like to call them acts, if you want to do the, you know, the first part, introduce it and, and stuff, and then take a long time at the end, well, you better have a lot of action again, or you better have a lot of intrigue or something that uh, keeps your audience engaged because we like this rhythm, this 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 balance feeling. We like to have kind of the same amount of time for this as the same amount of time for that. That's why our bridges, when we build bridges, that's why they're all balanced. Look at the Golden Gate Bridge. You know what I'm saying? We like that symmetry. Yeah. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to make it that way. You can purposely take the audience right to the point of boredom and then hit them with something. That may be what you're designing to do, but just know that you're doing it. And so I also say that DNA Story Helix, the DNA also stands for do nothing arbitrarily. You only have so much time in, the mo in a movie, and every minute counts. Every single thing needs to you know, be for its uh, a purpose. And even if that purpose is just to stall time or a gap filler, at least you know, hey, I'm doing this to, to, to bridge a gap here. It doesn't have much to do with the story, but I can't go from you know, chopping off someone's head to, you know, somebody making love. I need to have some little, some segue. So at least you know it's a segue, but do nothing arbitrarily in that. So that's become my bread and butter tool for directors and producers and studios who need some way, it's almost impossible, but they need some way to say, here's a story, here's a script. Is there any way we can have any kind of of markers or indication that this can be a successful movie. I like it, but I feel that this is, you know, I don't feel a lot of excitement here. I didn't feel any real big bangs going on. And the Helix lets you look at it and say, well, you know, we have to go for so long before this happens, and this doesn't really aid our character in making his transition from 
say you know a physical person to a spiritual person or there's no there's no goal on either path and so um, yeah so that's become something that I've used since 1981 I had it copyrighted in 81 and uh, and it's just been a tool that's been invaluable um, for like I say studios and people that are write scripts and help and help writers as well because writers can get lost in their craft and all right. Yeah, it's a very it's a very interesting um, way to handle stories. Um, in inside the model that you you have on your IMDb, uh, it also has smaller uh, helixes inside. Right. Uh, so over the course of a movie, you can have multiple helixes. What if one is say out of sync? Like say you have a, a series of movies that you're doing, and, and you want a character arc. Like, uh, could you do a character arc with this? With the double helix you're, throughout, you, say yeah. two or three movies. If you're saying it's a if it's a series, you mean like a like episodic, kind of like uh kind of like um uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like each of those characters has kind of right. their wants and and the things that they need to focus on. Right. Um. So more you, you could could you potentially have like smaller helixes that are out of sync with the uh, main plots? Well, they could be out of sync, but you would know they're out of sync. And so you would choose to leave them out of sync. And I don't know exactly what that would do. You might kind of, it, the movie might end or that particular movie. And, and then you might go, huh, I wonder who's, well, who is Snoke, right? That's kind of, that was kind of an out of sync thing a little bit for Star Wars, if you remember, right? We didn't know who Snoke was and we thought they'd pick it up. The fact that they didn't really pick much of it up and we still don't know and now he's dead or supposedly dead means that it is a bit out of sync but you can have yes each character actually has their own arc it's just how it's just how many movies you're going to put in the series or episodes in the series and are you going when are you going to finish it and then are you going are we going to know that character's arc long before the whole series finishes or are we going to know it right as that series ends does that make sense yeah um so so if your character if you've got 18 episodes this season and your character is going to finally overcome his weakness uh, for gambling right you can you will choose in a huge from 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 the first episode to number 18 you decide where he's going to overcome that right and it, and wherever that is that then becomes his arc and and what you put in each episode is determined upon where that arc, how that arc sits on the entire 18 episodes, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, so it does. It breaks down smaller and smaller. Well, what you're referring to that you see on that picture is that, yeah, there are smaller and smaller helixes in there because you can go all the way down to a scene. And even in the scene, it, a scene will follow the helix, which is virtually beginning, middle, and end. Things begin, they have a middle, they have an end. You leave it as a cliffhanger, or you don't. You resolve it, or you add a, a piece of intrigue to carry over to the next helix. So in that picture, you can see them getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, Frank Daniels' methodology is another very popular way, save the cat, popular way to look at a screenplay and a story. And so they operate on uh, like eight sequences. Most films have eight sequences that make up the films large sequences um, and if you look in there the helix breaks down into a perfect eight sequences that fulfills 
all those other books or all those other uh, um, methodologies that people use to say this is the way you write a screenplay or something. The Helix encompasses all those other books in, in how the story lays on top of it. It's not exclu- it's not, it doesn't exclude anything. It makes Save the Cat better. It makes Daniel methodology more understandable. Um, it makes all of those things that are written complementary. It complements all those other books and things. I didn't set out to do it that way. It just seemed to, to be that way that it really doesn't go against anything else anyone has ever written or said about it. It just clarifies it in a visual form. It's it's kind of like another... Uh, it's good to have multiple ways of looking at something. Right. Because one may click with someone better than... Yep. Than and I think I said yeah. that in class. I said, what is the best kind of exercise you can do? Well, it's the one that you'll do. Because it doesn't matter how good Pilates is if you don't do it or whatever. And so I think you should look and read and study. And if the Helix doesn't work for you, find one that works for you. Because one of them should resonate with you somewhere to help you try and see how these movies are being put together and how stories are put together. Because they really do follow an interesting uh, set of patterns, I guess is the way to put it. I mean, everyone hates to be told that there are rules in writing. It's just like using a curse word or something. But... Our world is rule. I mean, you can come up. I have a friend that's a car designer for Ford, and he tells me every year, oh, I'm going to make the most incredible car. It's going to blow you away. You're, it's not going to be like anything you've ever seen. And I say, okay, Mark, is it going to have four wheels? Well, yeah. Is it going to have a windshield? Yeah. Is it going to have a door? Yeah. And something that makes it go forward and backwards? Yeah. Something that turns it? Yeah. Something that you can see in the dark? Yeah. And you name every single part of a car. Every car has that. But it's not a formula or, or, or something that makes car design blasé. It's just every human, for the most part, we have two legs and two arms and ten fingers and two eyes. And, you know. But look how different we all look. Just because we have identified forms or patterns uh, within writing doesn't mean that if you follow or try to, to, to learn those that your stories are going to become formulaic, let's say. Or that every story is going to just be boring because you used a pattern. It just means that when you put your car on the showroom floor and you decided not to put wheels on it, uh, well, it can't really go down the road, can it? You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So, so it, you know, you're, we're going to bump into all those things. But I think you, you, like you're saying, Eric, you find something that resonates with you and use that with your writing thing. Um, for me, because you're in my class, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be stuck doing the helix until you, till I give you that A, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it was an interesting transition to go from very, very hands-on building, dirty hand, cutting, machining, you know, sawing something, to this very cerebral kind of, you know, exercise into story. It was almost like the helix itself. That blue line, if you're looking at the picture, that physical outward story was me in a physical world of special effects. And this deeper, more, I don't know if it's meaningful, but at least for me it was, deeper, more meaningful, more fulfilling storyline was me actually now being able to dive into the, 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 the mental mechanics of writing and creating with words on paper, now on computer. So it actually was my transition off of that 
physical blue line up into the more meaningful uh, for me anyway more meaningful storyline of learning how stories work and how they're constructed and helping people writers students producers and directors really refine and hone their story so that it's as good as it can possibly be before you start spending real money to film it and we have a saying at the university um, a script is the easiest thing to fix now and the hardest thing to fix later or the most expensive right because all you gotta do is move some words around right now but when you start rolling film or start shooting your movie it's a lot of money to change locations or you know add in whole different things so that's become exciting for me i get talking about it and hmm, it's great do you still speak to producers now about it or um uh-huh. is it mainly just in oh right that's yeah great. no i still i'm still active every day and i i get sent scripts um i just helped produce a film up in in boise idaho that's now being edited and uh in fact they've got they hope they have what they call a picture lock where they have the final edit on that and i'm excited to see that but yeah absolutely all the time i get scripts that come to me and and i put them on the helix we take a look at them doesn't mean uh-huh. that they're going to be a hit or not but at yeah. least you can see that you got the four wheels and you didn't forget a steering wheel and you know that kind of thing so yeah it's exciting a lot of fun and infectious to my son and hopefully some students yeah so. <laughs> hint hint <laughs> wink wink nudge nudge oh, <laughs> well i think that's probably reached our conclusion for the podcast uh thank you so much for obviously coming on and talking about this stuff i'm always really fascinated in all of this kind of thing um i, I love movies and the the creation pro- process behind it script writing or just um on the set and how it's all done anyway well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Um, Always glad to have you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and thanks, guys, for watching the podcast, and we'll see you in the next one. Have a good one.